I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. I want to read the verses 19 through to the end of the chapter. 19 through to the end of chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, beginning to read at verse 19. And here we hear God's word as follows. This is the word of the Lord. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. But all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, not only on him, but also on, on, me, on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly, that when you see him again you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem, because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. And our text for this morning is the last two verses, verses 29 and 30. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem, because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life to supply what was lacking in your service towards me. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to the reading and the preaching and the hearing of the word of God again this morning. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ gathered here in Salem with me this morning. This morning, we've had the great privilege and the solemn obligation to ordain Brother Zechfeld and Brother Vogel in the, into the office of deacon. It's a well-established custom in Reformed churches to regularly, usually annually, elect and ordain men into the offices of elder and deacon. But have you ever seriously thought about the work that the Lord calls them to do? When you do, it occurs to you that the task seems almost overwhelming. Who is equipped for such a task? The deacons are called to be good stewards over that which God's people have given for kingdom service, and, and they are called to use that money to alleviate suffering and, and to finance and further the kingdom, all the while being conscious of the fact that they will give a final accounting to the Lord for how they have min managed the finances of the church. Who is qualified to do all that in accordance with the will of the Lord? The elders as well have responsibilities which are nothing less than momentous. For example, it is their task along with the minister to accept or to reject applicants for church membership. What a responsibility. 
They're also called upon when necessary with trembling hands to pick up the keys of the kingdom and to declare that certain people, unless they repent, have no place in the kingdom of heaven. What an awesome responsibility. Well may they cry out with the Apostle Paul, who is, who is sufficient for such things? And then yet, although that it goes without saying that every minister must be, a comp- must be competent in the scriptures, what is not always understood by us is that every ruling elder must also be a theologian. You see, one of the qualifications for office is that the elders must be able to vow before God that they will maintain the purity of the word. How will it be possible for the elder to recognize sound doctrine and to supervise the minister's handling of the word unless the elder himself is well-versed in theology. How can the elders do their duty in checking up on the soundness of the minister's preaching unless they themselves, first of all, have a good working knowledge of the Bible? How can an elder fulfill his duties, as Paul writes to Titus? How can he hold fast the faithful word and be able by sound doctrine to exhort and convict those who contradict sound doctrine unless the elder himself is first of all convicted of the truths of Scripture? He cannot. He cannot fulfill his ordination vows unless he himself understands and is able to teach the mysteries of the Christian faith himself, first of all. Then yet, in addition to elders and deacons, there's the office of the minister of the word, the word and sacraments, and with all of the obligations that come with that office. Contrary to some public opinion, he is not just someone that the congregation has hired because of certain gifts and talents he possesses, but he is, he is a man called by God. He is ordained by the church to confirm his calling by God and he is set aside by God to that special ministry of rescuing souls from the fires of hell. What must be our attitude towards such men? Well, our text helps us to understand some of these things as it speaks of men in the particular service of our Lord. Our text speaks of Timothy and Epaphroditus. It speaks of ministers and missionaries working in their home congregations. In short, it refers to any and all men who have received a particular calling from the Lord, be that as minister, elder, or deacon. And in that context, Paul holds up for us here Epaphroditus. And he identifies him as a brother, a fellow worker, a fellow servant, and a messenger. And then in verse 29, Paul admonishes the congregation to welcome him in the Lord with great joy. But stronger yet, he says, honor men like him, or if you will, hold them in high esteem for their work's sake. Paul here admonishes the congregation to honor these particular servants, but they are to honor them, they are to hold them in high esteem, not because of who they are, but they are to the, not because of who they are, but because of what they are, because they have been called, because of the calling they have received from the Lord. And so I want to minister to you God's word, using as my theme this morning, men worthy of esteem. Men worthy of esteem. We want to consider in sequence who they are, 
of what they are worthy, why they are worthy of it, and why we must hold them in esteem. Men worthy of esteem, who they are, what they are worthy of, why they are worthy of it, and why we must hold them in high esteem. You remember, I hope, the context, or you would know the context. Paul had been taken prisoner in Rome, and Epaphroditus had been sent by the Philippian congregation to minister to Paul's needs while he was in, in, a prisoner. And in all likelihood, he would have brought food and clothing and perhaps some financial assistance, and he, and he would have tried to take care of any other particular need of Paul while he was incarcerated. But while he was there, he took sick, very seriously sick. And that news had reached Philippi, his congregation. And now news had come back to Paul and Epaphroditus that the congregation, Epaphroditus' congregation, had heard of his illness. And since they had not yet heard of his recovery, they were concerned about him. And that, in turn, concerned Epaphroditus. He doesn't want them to worry about him. And, and now Epaphroditus begins to worry about the emotional state of his congregation. And people God, it is good for us to capture for a moment the underlying current of love, fellowship, and devotion here. Epaphroditus is worrying that the congregation might be worrying. And the Philippians are worrying that Epaphroditus might not be well. And then the Apostle Paul now is concerned about Epaphroditus because he is now homesick for his congregation. You know, you read this part of Paul's letter and you cannot help but capture the obvious spirit of reciprocal love and devotion for one another here. There is here a spirit of love. There is here a loving relationship between congregation and minister, which would make many ministers and congregations envious. And it has given us for our example. Epaphroditus loved his flock, and they loved him. And so the apostle writes to the congregation, I found it necessary to send him, Epaphroditus, to you, since he was longing for you all and he was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. And then finally at the close of the chapter he writes, Receive him therefore with all gladness in the Lord and hold such men in esteem. The apostle says, Welcome him, Epaphroditus. Welcome him therefore in the Lord with all gladness. But then he goes on to say, Hold such men in esteem or honor. And we need to notice the distinction here for a moment. It is not Epaphroditus alone that is to be held in honor, but such men, Paul says, such men, or if you will honor him and men like him. But what does that mean? Oh, we know what it means to honor or esteem certain people, but what does it mean when the text says that we are to esteem men such as Epaphroditus? Well, in order to answer the question, we have to first of all ask and answer just who or what was Epaphroditus. If we are to honor men such as him, we need to know much more about him. But my dear, precious people of God, when we examine the text, in fact, when we search the entire Bible to find out more about him, we learn that scripture tells us almost nothing about him. (coughs) Oh, indeed, we hear of him again in chapter 4. (coughs) but we are not given any more information. But although it is indeed true that we know precious little, the little that we do know 
is significant and important. First of all, from the context, we learn that he was a member of the Philippian congregation. And some scholars speculate that he was one of the bishops referred to in the opening verses of chapter 1. But there's no real evidence to prove or to disprove that. So perhaps he was, but he may well have just been a simple member of the congregation. We don't know. We do know from the context that he had taken it upon himself to make a difficult journey to Rome out of his love for the Apostle Paul. We know further that Paul calls him a brother. He is quite emphatic about that, but more yet in the same sentence, he calls him a brother and a fellow worker, implying that Epaphroditus had assisted in the work of ministry of some sort. He was then also introduced to us as a fellow soldier, implying that not only had he worked in ministry, but he also suffered for the cause. The text suggests that he had suffered hardship and persecution for the sake of the gospel. And when we now put all of those pieces together, we can safely draw some conclusions about the man. It would appear from our text and the context that Epaphroditus was a man busy laboring in the vineyard of the Lord in some official capacity. And so we could say he was an office bearer. He worked hard. He taught vigorously. And as a result, he suffered hardship and persecution. He was busy working for the Lord under that particular kind of calling from the Lord. And in so doing, it seems he had exerted himself to the point of exhaustion. He had, if you will, he had worn himself out. He had worn himself out working in the kingdom and then and then when on top of all of his other work, he volunteers to minister to Paul in Rome. He finally, it seems, he finally, he burns out. We learned that he had become so sick that he had almost died and, and most commentators attribute his sickness to being overworked in the service of the Lord. And yet, despite his illness, we can know also from the context that he was not concerned about his own well-being. No, he was more concerned about his sheep. He traveled to Rome to care for Paul, and once in Rome, he wanted to hurry back because he was concerned about his congregation. In short, people of God here in Salem, it appears that Epaphroditus obviously demonstrated that he was a Christian with a particular calling to serve the Lord. And that's also why Paul addresses him as a brother. Oh, indeed, all Christians are brothers in a certain sense, but that's not what Paul meant in this context. Paul sees him as a brother because Paul sees him living and working as a brother and fellow worker with him in the vineyard of the Lord. So how then would we describe Epaphroditus? Well, he was an office bearer who was what? He was functioning as an office bearer. Simple as that. He wasn't just sitting in the elders' pew on Sundays and in the consistory room on Tuesday evening. No, in addition to those things, he was actively involved in loving and shepherding the flock. He loved his flock. He cared for his flock. He probably preached to them and taught them, and he did so fervently and zealously. In fact, in fact, so zealously that he literally collapsed physically. 
He gave no thought to himself or his own needs. His all-consuming concern was the flock that God had given him the responsibility for. And he was willing to sacrifice his all for the sake of the kingdom. That now was Epaphroditus. But notice carefully now that all of the things that we know about this man are in the spiritual realm. We know nothing of him physically or materially. We do not know if he was rich or poor. We do not know if he had any exceptional gifts or if he was a simple, ordinary, run-of-the-mill office bearer. We We do not know if he was a man of stature or position or influence. We know not where he came from nor what happened to him. We surmise from the text that there was nothing extraordinary about him. But this much is known from the text. He was a brother, a companion, an official fellow worker in the kingdom. He was a soldier in the army of the Lord. He was a teaching or a ruling elder or perhaps both. And that then gives us answer to the question, who are we to hold in high esteem? The answer is nothing to do with the physical or the material. It has nothing to do with the person with persons who may have, if you will, arrived in this world. It has nothing to do with those people who may be able to afford to give great gifts to the church and kingdom with little or nothing more. No, scripture admonishes us to hold such men, men such as Epaphroditus in high esteem, and we know precisely nothing about the physical or material condition of him. Obviously then, whether or not a man is to be revered highly in the church has nothing to do with financial status. Who then are the ones that Paul admonishes us to esteem highly? It is those who are expending themselves in a particular way in and for the kingdom. Such men, says Paul, such men hold them in high esteem. To say it in other words, the apostle says, if you have among you, if you have men among you who demonstrate their spirituality and are zealous for the work of the kingdom, if you have such men among you, hold them in high esteem, or if you will, honor them and value them, treasure them. If you have men among you who have been clothed with that cloak of the office by the Lord, hold them in high esteem, cherish them, value them, honor them, Set them apart in your mind. See them as being different from you. And treat them as being different from you. They are not to be regarded as common. No, they are to be regarded as different and special among you. Understand this well with me, congregation. For tragically, we have here a teaching and a concept long since forgotten by many of us. Follow with me for a moment. If we set such men apart in our minds, if we hold such men in high esteem, that will come to expression in the way we treat them, in the way in which we conduct ourselves towards such men. What I mean is this. Christ commands us to love all of the brethren. In other words, we are to express Christian love to all Christians, beginning with those within our own families and church family, but on these special Christians, meaning these these are those who are set apart, on them we are to bestow a particular love. 
We hold all brethren in esteem because they are brethren in Christ. But to those who are called to special service in Christ, those called to the special offices in the church, to those we are to show special honor. We are to give them a special place within the church. And notice with me that Paul admonishes the congregation to hold Epaphroditus in high esteem. But notice also that the admonition is preceded with the injunction to receive him in the Lord. That's the qualifier. That's the condition of special honor. You see, the church lives and works in that spiritual sphere of the Lord. In other words, in other words the church is in the Lord. The church has been chosen by Christ in all eternity. The church has been washed from all of her sin by the blood of Christ. And the church has been grafted into Christ by true saving faith. Therefore, because the church is in Christ, therefore Christ and the spirit of Christ dwell within the church. And Christ and his spirit become the life and the power by which the church lives and works in the world. The church lives by faith, and through faith, she lives out of Christ. And now the Philippians were admonished to receive this man and others like him in Christ. People have captured this well with me. When the congregation was here admonished to receive this servant in the Lord, that meant that the congregation was to recognize that Epaphroditus and men who labor like him in the church, they were to be received as a particular, a special gift to the church from Christ himself. In other words, congregation, office bearers who labor in the Lord in the congregation, they are to be received and seen as special gifts from Christ himself, and they are to be honored, received, and treated as such. They are to be looked upon as special jewels from Christ because of their particular grace of Christ in them. And as such, says the Bible, hold these men in high esteem. They are gifts from Christ to the, to the church of Christ for the well-being of the church. And as Christ said to the 70 when they were commissioned and sent out by him, he who hears you hears me. In other words, receive these men, honor these men because, because hear me well, Christ himself has appointed ministers and elders to speak the very words of Christ after him for the sake of your very souls. And Christ gives you these men for the sake of your eternal well-being. These men were given you by the Lord to nurture and to guard your souls. These men are given to you by the Lord to equip you for eternity. Love them as such, treat them as such, and honor them as such. My dear people, God, let me go just one step further. And again, it is a biblical command all but lost among contemporary Christianity, even among us. When Paul says we are to hold such men in high esteem, that special honor is to be given to all office bearers, but especially to the minister. That's what we're taught in Paul's first letter to Timothy chapter 5 or 17, where we read, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. 
And Paul there instructs Timothy to see to it that the elders receive their due respect, but he is to see to it that it is especially the teaching elder or the ministers that they are held in high esteem in the congregation. Isn't that precisely what Paul is also saying here to the Philippian congregation? Of course it is. And the word of God says the same to every congregation, also to your congregation here in Bowmanville. But now, if we take the text as found in Paul's letter to Timothy for a moment, then we read there that after Paul instructs Timothy to see to it that the local church will hold elders, but especially ministers in high esteem, then he immediately goes on to explain at least one very important way in which that honor is to come to expression. Paul says to Timothy, see to it that these men are held in high esteem and hear me well. Never, never entertain an accusation against them unless it is supported by two or three witnesses. And congregation, that truth cannot be stressed enough. We need to underscore in bold print every word and syllable there. Let me repeat it. Paul says to Timothy, See to it that you allow no one to level a charge against a minister unless it is supported by two or three witnesses. Do not entertain such a charge. In other words, do not even listen to such a charge. Loose talk, idle words, common gossip, slander about your minister or consistory members may not be made, nor may it be heard. In still other words, it is sinful to make such a charge, and it is equally sinful to listen such a charge, unless that charge can be substantiated by two or three witnesses. And people of God, my dear precious people of God, it would be my conviction that even we in the Reformed churches, we do more harm and injury to the very cause of Christ by this sin than any other in the church. And it has to be the most serious of sins. And it has to be the sin that has the most devastating effect for the church of Christ. And it is further my conviction that this sin of slandering a minister is more common today than it was years ago. Precisely because we have lost our biblical understanding of the authority of the ordained offices in the church. When, for instance, we, as is often done among us, when we begin to call our minister by their first names, already we evidence we have lost the biblical distinction between the pulpit and the pew. And then we see a minister as being no different from ourselves and consequently we gossip about him as we do about others in the church. Scripture addresses that sin and scripture maintains the distinction. Follow this with me. In the ninth commandment, we are taught that we are forbidden to bear false witness against our neighbor. We go on to further define that commandment in the negative and the positive. We confess that God forbids us from slandering our neighbor and he commands us to do all we can to promote our neighbor's good name and reputation. We all understand that. We don't always do that, but we understand that. And the question that we want to consider for a moment is this. If, if the injunction to protect the good name and reputation of our neighbor 
is already clearly taught us in the ninth commandment. And obviously the commandments are also relevant in relation to elders and ministers. Why would Paul, why would Paul go out of his way in this letter to Timothy to single out the seriousness of violating this commandment in connection with especially ministers? And congregation, the answer is before us if only we will hear it. You see, fallen men and women like you and I, by nature, by virtue of virtue of our fallen nature, we love to tell and hear a little bit of gossip. We love to meet over coffee, over dinner, or on the phone to share a little tidbit we've heard about so-and-so. That's already very sinful, and it is a blatant violation of the ninth commandment. Properly understood, congregation, to break the ninth commandment is no less sinful than to violate the seventh commandment. We make a big deal out of it when a person is found guilty of adultery, but, but the sin of gossip is no less serious and it is equally repulsive to the Lord. We need to think about that for a moment the next time we're inclined to share what we've heard about someone. However, as serious as that so-called harmless gossip may be or seem to you, when that kind of gossip is spread about the minister or the elders, when we decide to slander our minister, it has the most devastating effect. And that consequence does not affect them first of all. John Calvin correctly observes that when we begin to whisper allegations, no matter how minor, about the minister or the elders, then people by nature love to hear it and then immediately their work and ministry falls under a cloud of suspicion. And the result is the work of Christ stops in the congregation. Remember that we've learned earlier from our text, Paul admonishes the congregation to receive Epaphroditus with great joy in the Lord because he was a fellow servant of the Lord. He was Christ's special ambassador. He was the one appointed by God himself to speak the words of Christ himself after him. And when his good name and reputation is ruined because of gossip or slander by a congregational member, or if you will, if we by our conduct as members, <coughs> if we fail to hold such men in high esteem, if we fail to give them double honor as the Lord requires, then we hinder Christ's own work in the congregation. We need to understand this well. When we malign the pastor or the elders, then we ruin their good name and reputation. We violate the ninth command, but the, but the most serious of all, by treating Christ's particular servants in that way, we drive Jesus Christ himself out of the congregation. We need to understand that well. We need to bite our tongues the next time we're tempted to stoop to such a sin. In fact, it is better to cut your tongue out rather than to save your tongue and to be eternally lost because you allowed it to slander a man of God's choosing. My dear precious people of God, guard your tongue from such a heinous sin as slandering or gossiping about the office bearers in the church. People of God, if you esteem, honor, and love men who are set apart by God for the care of your souls, when you love, honor, and esteem them highly for their work's sake, even when they bring the word of God in such a way as to pain you. 
when you then still receive them as sent by the Lord for that very purpose, when you then see them for who they are and for what they were called to do for your soul, then you will praise God even when the message is painful for you and you will come to know that it is only after the wound has been exposed by the Lord that the Lord also through that same servant will apply God's healing balm. When that is done in the congregation, then the Lord will bless you in your devotion to such men. These men will then be used by God for the rescuing of your very souls and the souls of your children from the fires of eternal destruction. People of God, make no mistake. If it is your prayer that God would please this very church and this congregation, that God would bless this very church and congregation, then you need to start by recognizing that God's blessing rests upon every congregation where members hold in high esteem and love, honor, and cherish their minister, their elders, and deacons whom have been given them by God as special gifts for the nurturing and the well-being of their eternal souls. Such congregations are not only grateful that they have received their minister, elder, and deacons, but they recognize that they have received them as gifts from God. They will treat them with respect and with awe and reverence. In short, they will hold them in high esteem, and such congregations will experience the blessing of the Lord. Shall we pray? Father, how good and pleasant is the sight when brethren make it their delight to dwell in blessed accord. The Lord commands his blessing there and they that walk in love shall share in life that never ends. Amen.